Hello and welcome to our webinar, From Programs to People, Reimagining Adult Faith Formation. I'm John Sitko, Assistant Director of Programs at the Catholic Apostle Center, and I'm helping to host this webinar today. I'm pleased to welcome our presenter for this web webinar, Nicole M. Perone, is the National Coordinator of STEAM, the faith-based leadership program for Catholic students at colleges and universities across the United States, preparing young adults for the transition from campus ministry to parish life. ASEAM is a partnership between Leadership Roundtable in St. Thomas More Catholic Chapel and Center at Yale University. Nicole previously served as the Archdiocesan Director of Adult Faith Formation for the Archdiocese of Hartford. She holds a Master in Divinity from Yale University, her Bachelor's of Arts in Theology with double minors in Italian and Catholic study and Studies was bestowed by Loyola University, Maryland, where she graduated summa cum laude Phi Beta Kappa. In 2018, Nicole was a delegate to the Priest Synod on Young People, the Faith and Vocational Discernment, and served on the Writing Committee for the final document. Her work has been published by American Media, Catholic News Service, The Jesuit Post, and U.S. Catholic. We're pleased to have her speaking with us about catechesis and adult faith formation as part of the center's series on the directory for catechesis. If you have any technical issues during this presentation, please send a message in the chat box in the bottom right of the screen and I will try to help you. Now I will turn over things to Nicole who will start off her presentation with a prayer. Thanks so much, John. So before we get started, I thought we'd just open with a quick word of prayer. So if you will take a moment to join me, Centering yourself, knowing that we are always in the presence of our loving God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Loving God, thank you for gathering us here in this virtual space today for time of ongoing formation to consider the ways that we can best serve the adults of the body of Christ. We pray that we may be open and receptive to all that the Holy Spirit asks of us. We pray that we may also be open and receptive to the wisdom of the directory for catechesis and find new ways to allow the spirit to move in our ministries and in our lives. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, thank you all for being with me today for this webinar, From Programs to People, Reimagining Adult Faith Formation. As John said, this is part of the Center series on the Directory for Catechesis. I've got my prop ready right here. Always need a good prop in these things. So just a, a quick word of introduction. John gave you a, a great bio, but just a quick reminder of who I am. I am the National Coordinator of ESTEAM, partnership between Leadership Roundtable and St. Thomas More at Yale. Essentially, I consider myself a full-time advocate and cheerleader for young adults in the church. Um, I spend a lot of time thinking about the role of young people, whether it's through ESTEAM's leadership formation and post-grad life transition, whether it's as the chair of the Board of Governors of the National Institute for Ministry with Young Adults, or as a member of the team developing the pastoral framework on youth and young adult ministry for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, or as a priest and a delegate. So there's a lot I do to spend time thinking about young adults, but in terms of the sphere of adult faith formation, while of course young adults are adults and adult faith formation absolutely applies to them, this was my bread and butter for nearly five years at the Archdiocese of Hartford when I was the Archdiocesan Director of Adult Faith Formation. In that time, not only did I spend time thinking about adult faith formation, but also adult preparation for sacraments like RCIA and adult confirmation, form of our lay leaders in terms of our lay ministry program, ELM, our directing our women's conference and other responsibilities as needed, which we know fills up about 90% of our day. 
So that's where I'm coming from. These are the things that excite me. And that's why I'm really excited to be talking about the directory for catechesis today, because I think there's just so much in here. We're going to stay focused on a tight area, but do tune into anything that the Catholic Apostolate Center is doing on this topic, because they are simply the best. So let's get to it. What do we talk about when we talk about adult faith formation? So I want to identify just a few goals, or rather the church has identified them, and I'm just going to underscore them, in terms of what we are doing. What are we shooting for in terms of adult faith formation, which can take on many forms and has sort of many iterations in our communities of faith? So there are two sets of goals, which you'll see a lot of overlap of, that I wanted to start with. The first are from Our Hearts Were Burning Within Us, a pastoral plan for adult faith formation in the United States, which is a document from the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. If you haven't had a chance to acquire or read that document, I do highly recommend it. And these are the three goals they set out for adult faith formation. First, to invite and enable ongoing conversion to Jesus in holiness of life. So that personal, you know, ongoing conversion of heart and growth in holiness, starting with the individual person. Second, to promote and support active membership in the Christian community, which we know is a hallmark of our Roman Catholic identity. Community is what sets us apart and part of what we need to grow. And third, to call and prepare adults to act as disciples in mission to the world. Disciples in mission, disciples on mission. We love a Catholic apostolate center programmatic connection here. They know what they're about. But what I like about this point is that it's the grow and go. So we are forming adults and then sending them out into the world to do what we're called to do as disciples. Now, of course, then we have the new directory for catechesis that also identifies goals, which you'll see kind of overlapping there boiled down to very, very short, uh, pithy statements, elicit faith, purify faith, nourish faith, and assist the sharing and witness of faith. And that's from uh, the Directory for Catechesis number 261. So if we hold these up, these uh, three and four goals, as the lens through which we view the formation of adults in the faith, then there are some uh, further truths that we can identify. And we hold these truths to be self-evident. The first is that graduation is officially postponed. The formation of adults is not linear and is not hierarchical. No one graduates from formation in the faith. We use the phrase lifelong faith formation for a reason. It is not something that you level up and complete and then you have been totally formed and you're set to go. Certainly on the journey of faith, there are some who are in a different place or some who um, grow in advance in their own way, but it is not a comparison. And so we really want to move away from that sort of way of thinking. That's also what happens when we lean into a heavily um, intellectual or academic sense of catechesis and formation, we can fall into that trap. So let's postpone graduation permanently. The second truth we hold is that one size does not fit all. And so despite the challenges of staffing and resourcing and time, you know, which we know are so scarce, especially in this reality, a one size fits all model or program in a box does not fit the reality of adult life today. Truly, I, I hear and acknowledge the reality of a sense of dearth of resources and energy today, but we can't fall into yet another trap of bemoaning, why are the pews empty? Or these parents aren't raising their kids in the faith when we don't focus our energies on forming them in the faith in a way that makes sense for who they are. 
to accompany them to make their faith a priority is what we're going for. So how can we shift our culture from programs for the purpose of adult faith formation to being communities that form faithful adults, something that is a thread that runs through the whole fabric of the life of our community of faith. It's not something we're going to solve in one sitting, of course. If it was, you know, I, I'd be making my money and sitting on a beach in Florida, but that's not how a shift in culture works. But we can explore some major building blocks of quality, people-centered adult faith formation. In the first place, absolutely where we must begin is consideration of the person. This is so core to who we are, down to Catholic social teaching, dignity of the human person, the personal relationship with Jesus Christ, everything starts with the person. So forming faithful adults begins with a consideration of the person, addressing the diverse life tasks and situations, needs and interests, and spiritual and faith journeys of adults in the seasons of adulthood. And the directory for catechesis says in paragraph number 262, Adults must not be considered as recipients of catechesis, but as participants together with the catechists themselves. And this is to say that forming adults must be a process of active inquiry with initiative residing in the adult, to quote a really great resource on adult faith formation, Vibrant Faith. It's a sense of utilizing a model wherein adults are the protagonists, not the recipients of ministry. It's not a providing of services, but it's ultra collaborative and formative for all involved because in reality, we are all adults after all. So of course, we must remember when we're thinking about the person, both age and stage, because it can't be one size fits all. So I want to point out just again, Vibrant Faith is a great resource. So um, I've pulled this categorization of stages of adulthood from them. Now, obviously, there's a little flexibility with these years. So, you know, don't take this as total gospel truth. We know there's a lot of sociological leeway um, with exactly how we put the parameters of these life stages. But I just wanted to highlight these because when we think of stages of adulthood right now, these are the big four, right? We have uh, older adults, also known as the builder generation or the greatest generation. We have the mature adults and the really kind of known as the baby boomers. We have the midlife adults, also known as Gen X. And then of course the young adult life stage, which are often referred to as millennials, although certainly Gen Z is now starting to eke into young adulthood. So there's much analysis to be done in terms of how each of these generations of adults learn and how they build community so that adult faith formation addresses the distinct ways that each generation learns, but that's a webinar for another time just to crack these four things open. I highly recommend if you haven't checked out um, 21st Century Adult Faith Formation and some of the other resources from Vibrant Faith, they do a lot of good work on this too. The thing is, of course, when we look at these, even when we can identify different stages of adulthood, which require those different responses, there are variations in the stages themselves. Just because someone falls technically into a certain age demographic doesn't mean they're in the same stage of life as others. Here's two examples. In the stage of life that is young adulthood, you'll have college students in that 18 to 22 range, perhaps direct to workforce young people who are 18, don't go to college and are entering right into the workforce. You have young professionals who are working and figuring all that out. Young couples starting that period of commitment in their lives and you're finding your person and starting to figure out what life looks like with this person. Then you have young families. So technically in young adulthood, you have an 18 year old and a 33 year old with two kids. 
they're in very different stages of life, but technically all under the umbrella of young adulthood. So the way you respond to them, the way you accompany them, and the way you form them as adults have to be very different. Same example for baby boomers, right? In terms of the boomer generation right now, boomers have children in high school, some have children in college, some are past those stages and paying for weddings and paying off mortgages, some are in retirement in Boca Raton, saving me a seat, I hope, some are babysitting grandchildren by now. So if a boomer is, you know, has children in high school, maybe one or two in college, and is dealing with that sort of um, financial component of their life, versus, you know, retired and watching their grandchildren and perhaps no longer caring for elderly parents, the parameters of their life look very, very different, even though technically they're under the auspice of baby boomers. So I use those two examples just to underscore that just because you're in the same age range does not mean you're in the same life stage. So how you are formed in the faith and what you're seeking in terms of accompaniment from a faith community might look different. And of course, the directory for catechesis reminds us of this. It's all in here. So I really like this because, again, this underscores my underscoring that in comparison with the past, this stage of life, that is adulthood, is no longer understood as an already completed state of stability, but as a continual process of restructuring that takes into account the evolution of personal sensibilities, the interweaving of relationships, the responsibilities to which the person is called. So again, there's a lot happening in any given life stage. And then, of course, there are spiritual stages of adulthood. So it's not just your age and what's happening kind of in your life in the in the temporal or secular capacity, but the directory in paragraph 258 identifies these stages of spirituality. Again, it's not hierarchical. It's just people kind of in different places on the continuum. It's not even a linear continuum. It's a map that's crazy and windy and you go back and forth. Um, and so I highly recommend looking at this and taking into consideration how is the formation that our community is doing responding to each of these stages of adulthood where you have perhaps more believing, although I don't love that sort of uh, barometer, but adults who are living out their faith and wanna get to know it better. Then adults who maybe haven't brought their Christian initiation to the fullness of its capacity, adults who are kind of a little further away from the church, but seek out that connection to the ecclesial community at particular times, adults from other religious experiences or who are kind of having other religious experiences. There's a lot sort of in the spiritual stages of adulthood to consider, and they're all gonna need something different. What's gonna really tap into the interest of a baptized adult who's kind of vaguely connected to an ecclesial community, but needs to almost be evangelized in a new way is going to be very different than a believing adult who's super involved in the community. Those are two itches that cannot be scratched the same way. So all this is to say, having identified kind of where people are, what are some moments of formation? Where can we grab people and do something formative with them? And this will overlap often with moments of evangelization, moments of accompaniment, right? There's, there's a lot of Venn diagramming of these things in our ministries. And so I think these moments of formation can be large and small, but we, when we have them, we should use them to our advantage as opposed to waiting for, again, a formal programmatic moment or event or a moment. So here's a few that I think um, really have a lot of potential in terms of gateway moments. The first is sort of in the seeking sacraments category, when adults, for one reason or another, determine they want to enter into the fullness of the sacramental life of the church through the RCIA or adult confirmation, you know, which can be a really profound 
moment for catechesis and also for formation. The directory for catechesis often references the catechumenate, the, the basis of the RCIA, as really the basis for how we should be doing all catechesis, which is really exciting for those of us that love the RCIA. Of course, then you also have when adults are seeking the sacrament of matrimony, when they come and say, we want to be married in the church, which we should celebrate and be excited about and just really loud and praise any adult that determines that in a time when not everybody does get married in the church. But there's moments of formation that can be done there too, not just preparation for the sacrament of matrimony, but this ongoing formation. When they would like their children to be baptized as well is another great moment, right? To do that baptismal preparation, but also ongoing formation as they're building the domestic church. And then there's a lot of adults who come to us and wish to stand as godparents or sponsors. What a great chance when you have a captive audience who wants to serve as a Christian witness for somebody who wants to be this witness to the faith, this mentor in the faith for whoever is, is receiving the sacrament to form them as well. Then of course we have these moments of return. We have times when folks all along those spiritual stages are coming back into the church for one reason or another, the literal physical church, but also reconnecting with the ecclesial community. Ash Wednesday is a great one, Christmas and Easter, and gosh, isn't there just so much formation to be done with those three that, that I could stop there and the PowerPoint there. But of course there's more. What happens when someone is reconnecting to an ecclesial community you know, with their family, perhaps their home for an extended visit, perhaps, um, you know, a parent or family member needs care. So they're home for a longer period of time, part of a new community, college breaks for our young people, etc. Those are great chances to do to catch some formation, catch some catechesis, do it while you can. Of course, these sacramental moments for loved ones can also be really profound moments of encounter and formation, whether it's funerals, you know, uh, addressing the grief of losing a loved one, but also celebrating the sacramental moments of others when others are getting married, when others' children are being baptized, and to catch them for that as well. And then, of course, in light of all of that, those are folks who might be coming back for um, after a period of time, perhaps, then there are other more ongoing spaces where we can be doing formation. And again, it doesn't have to be this overly programmatic or formalized thing. You have folks who are involved in liturgical participation in your community, I would imagine, of course, right now, that's fluctuating, that's looking a little a little more nebulous, but that the time will come, perhaps the time has come, where you have lectors and Eucharistic ministers, ministers of music and hospitality back in your worship communities. And those are kind of built-in um, formation communities that can be formed together, that can do some really quality catechesis and formation of adults around a specific topic. Same thing with social and pastoral ministries, your religious ed catechists and your RCIA team members, that is a great place for ongoing formation as they form others, they too should be formed. Folks who might participate in a parish Bible study or a social justice ministry, there's a lot of great connection there. That ground is really fertile. And then thinking about some other groups, one example would be bereavement groups. You know, my husband's grandmother at in her late 70s determined that that was a ministry she wanted to be a part of in her community. And it's been a really great place of adult faith formation for her, even if she might not personally identify it that way, because it's enabling her to grow in her faith. The parish is doing a lot of good work to form and prepare those who are involved in bereavement ministry. So you'd be surprised where you can just catch these moments. 
And then, of course, parish leadership should be committed to ongoing formation together. I, that is my great plea and exhortation that parish and finance councils and parish staff, volunteers, even trustees would be engaged in ongoing formation, especially thinking about being servant leaders. So having said all of this, what are some examples we can celebrate? I think in this time of the pandemic, you know, there's been such an awareness of what is lacking during COVID, especially when we're unable to gather in person, which is so critical to who we are. And I think it's well worth celebrating a few things that did work. And so I, I want to think about this as sanctifying creativity. These are just a few examples of moments of encounter that turned into formation, caught in all the ways and places that we could. So they may not be groundbreaking, and they're certainly not doing doctoral level theological education here, which is good. That's not what adult faith formation is, right? But they do the good work. So I just wanted to celebrate a few examples. The first is pictured here. Uh, I'm going to call it a block party mass. That's not what they called it, but that is what I'm going to call it for sake of our conversation. This uh, is an example from my home parish. So obviously I have a hearty bias here, but when the um, obligation was, you know, lifted and, and there was there were limitations on gathering in person, uh, here in Connecticut, uh, our parochial vicar really, you know, stayed in touch with members of the community as did the whole parish, and he really felt called to to go out. And so, of course, you know, we encouraged him in that and said, like, figure out a great way to do that. And so he started connecting to members of the community and saying, hey, I know we can't worship together in the church building, but I would really like to bring the Eucharist to you. So if you have some people on your, you know, on your block, on your cul-de-sac, whatever, in your building, you know, we'll gather outside, I'll bring the whole setup and, and I will bring the Eucharist to you and we will celebrate mass outside. In this suburban town where this parish was, it became very, very popular and it became this moment for folks together to be a really beautiful witness out on, you know, literally on the streets, out on the front lawns of our community. Um, but then also to connect people to feel that the community cared about them that the parish cared about them and was prepared to do the hard work for them to come to them. And so he was really able to bring a lot of people into the life of the parish more fully uh, through that avenue. So it was that connecting back to the community outside of the parish walls. Another great example, and perhaps you've seen some of these, this was a big one on social media in a lot of places, certainly in the Archdiocese of Hartford, was cooking with the pastor. When folks could not come to mass, we had a few pastors that loved to cook. So they would, you know, set up one of these bad boys, set up an iPhone or an iPad and live stream on Facebook and do cooking with the pastor. But I really found it creative because the, the priests that did this were very intentional. It wasn't just, oh, I like this recipe, so I'm going to cook it. They chose recipes that tied back to their family. So they did a little like domestic church catechesis, um, perhaps to the saint of the day, which I thought was super creative. So there was a little backdoor catechesis that way. Um, I think that is some sanctifying of creativity, really going outside the box. A little um, more cut and dry was a few parishes had virtual small Christian communities or faith sharing communities. So they normally would gather in person, move them fully virtual over Zoom. That may seem simple, but a lot of places didn't do it. So I want to celebrate the ones that did and are continuing to do it. And it gave folks a sense of gathering in each other's homes, very much in the spirit of the early church. And so I think that's a really, again, creative way to say the ministries don't need to stop just because of our um, 
pause or suspended capacity to gather in person and formation can still happen of adults. We don't need to abandon them uh, until we can be together in person. Another great one, um, I say retreat boxes by mail here, but really retreat, conference, events, whatever, by mail. So a few different organizations, um, retreat entities, parish retreats, things like that, committed to continuing these retreats and events in the virtual capacity, but received the addresses, the mailing addresses of everyone who registered and then sent each of them a box. Now, one example that comes to mind was a retreat uh, center that sent um, the retreat binder with all the pieces, but then also some of the tactile cozy things of a retreat that really engaged the senses. It was a very much a multiple intelligences way of dealing with it. You know, sending a cozy blanket, a mug with little um, tea and hot chocolate packets, a candle and some other materials to set up a prayer space, a small prayer space while you were participating in this event. Um, I thought that was a really creative way to not only connect with the individual, make them feel very connected to the parish community, but put resources for formation in their hands. It really, again, talk about a different kind of program in a box, right? It was something that came right to them and made it a lot easier. So again, that removal of barrier to entry, I think, opens up a lot of avenues for formation to take place. And the final point that I wanted to uh, highlight and celebrate, speaking of getting right in the palm of their hands, right, and removing barriers to entry, there were a few parishes that I knew that curated playlists of videos for um, specifically their religious education parents who are now suddenly responsible for religious education um, classes and sacramental prep of their children at home during the pandemic. So it got to where the people were and sent them videos and music and other such things, but did it through an avenue that we all use, this thing that's in the palm of our hand all the time. It also demonstrated the digital competency, being unafraid to kind of move into the digital sphere. So what all of these have in common are that they met people where they are and really responded to the personal needs. None of these are something that could just be shot out into the ether and hope whoever catches it, catches it, but responded to needs, abilities, places in life, needs of the community first and foremost, which is why they work. And so remembering these goals that we pointed out in the beginning, the goals of adult faith formation, I just listed you know, a few ideas. Some of them are a little crazy. Some of them are a little more evangelizing or don't feel very formative. But the question is more, how do they invite and enable, promote and support, call and prepare, elicit faith, nourish faith, assist the witness of faith, right? If we hold each of these up as a lens or a mirror, or whatever analogy you wanna use, the how kind of just becomes a means to an end of these goals. So this is where that sense of sanctifying creativity comes into play, thinking outside the box, trying new things, proverbially throwing the spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks. COVID has given us the time and space to do that, to try new things, to start over, to fail, start over again. That's a, the beauty of this. We get the chance to try anew with adult faith formation. But you might be thinking to yourself in all of this, but what about programs? <laughs> now, contrary to what the title of this workshop might have implied, I do not believe programs are in, in and of themselves inherently bad. So please don't misunderstand that. 
Um, I think there are many good programs and events and initiatives out there. I won't go into you know a litany of them because this is another case where one size does not fit all. So what might be really amazing and super successful in one community, a program or initiative they loved, might be a total bust in another because just like a family, every community is different with different qualities and needs. And so just because program X worked in this neighboring parish doesn't mean it'll take in yours necessarily. Not a referendum on anyone. Every community is just different. The problem isn't programs themselves. The problem is when we treat programs as panacea. You know, again, you heard me say program in a box, right? Bring this box in, open it up magically in six weeks, all the adults in the parish will be formed in the faith. Again, I wish it were that easy, right? I'd, I'd be retired, I'd be in Florida, you know, before 30, it'd be pretty nice. But I can't tell you how many of these calls I would get when I was in diocesan work from really wonderful, incredible, thoughtful, well-meaning parish staff and volunteers who wanted to know like, well, I heard about this, or what's one thing we can do for the parish mission this year for a Lenten retreat, for a book study that would just be transformative and form all the adults. Or I heard about program X and my friend's parish, so I wanted to have the same success here. And the intention there, I think, is really good because there's this desire to provide formation of adults. And when you don't know where to start, it's kind of like online shopping, right? If you need to get something and you don't know where to start, you know to hit the big brands or, you know, well-reviewed popular items, I totally get that sentiment. So again, the intention is good, but the reality is, as we've discussed, adult faith formation is a thread that has to run through the whole fabric of the parish as opposed to one programmatic thing we do. Programs are a tool in the toolkit of how we serve the faithful, not the tool. So in conclusion, what we know about adult faith formation is that it requires our adaptability and flexibility, much like the current COVID reality asks all of our ministries to be. Simply put, we're trying to equip our fellow adults with what they need to respond with more faithful hearts to the graces and challenges of adulthood in the present day. So put even more simply from the directory itself, in the stages of adulthood, in fact, the faith itself is called to take different shapes to evolve and mature so that it may be an authentic and continual response to the challenges of life. Thanks so much. So now's a good time for any questions, comments. Here's some places you can find me if you're looking for me uh, via email or social media, but happy to take any questions. So um, as Nicole put, if you have any questions for Nicole, um, you can use either the chat or the questions tab up in your top right. Um, and we, I will try to help facilitate Q&A for probably about 20 minutes or so, if that's okay with you, Nicole. Mm -hmm. um, so the first question that I had was, um, are there some things in com that are common and different between young adult catechesis and formation and quote unquote regular adult faith <laughs> formation? You know, it's a great question because of course, young adults are adults. And so adult faith formation does apply to young adulthood. But I think um, kind of to my initial point about the variations in stages, when we think about young adults, there's a lot of major life milestones and moments of transitions that are happening in young adulthood. Not to say that a lot of stuff isn't happening through the rest of adulthood, but when you think about all the things, all the stuff that gets jam packed into the stage of young adulthood, you're looking at, um, finishing your full like physical growth and development, that pesky prefrontal cortex is still cooking in there, 
So you have the physical maturation that's still happening and then a lot of emotional, mental, spiritual, intellectual maturation that's happening. Think about for all of us who are no longer young adults or perhaps on the higher end of young adulthood or are more seasoned saints who might be on this call. Think about all the stuff that happened in your young adulthood, right? Perhaps you worked, perhaps you went to college first, you probably fell in love, you probably had your heart broken, you probably did a lot of vocational discernment if you're ending up on this call, right? You had to figure out who am I and what is God calling me to do with all of this, with this whole life. That's a lot to happen in one period. So forming young adults has to be very flexible, has to be very malleable to that. They're also significantly more transient. Uh, you know, young adults are more likely to move around, to be moving perhaps out of their parents' house into living on their own or living with their spouse, then starting a family. Jobs often change more quickly in that period. So they might be a part of your community and then they might be gone. And so how do you respond to that? How do you respond to people suddenly showing up and suddenly leaving? Um, I think, you know, perhaps one last point to that, and it is, of course, opens the Pandora's box to bigger questions about young adults, is in terms of data of engagement with the church, young adults tend to be less engaged. They tend to have already disaffiliated. If they are going to disaffiliate, they've disaffiliated by the time they arrive to young adulthood. They're dealing with sort of greater questions around um, how relevant the church is to their lives, if it's still relevant at all. So I think the battle might be slightly more uphill in some situations, whereas there might be, although not exclusively, with Gen X and boomers in the greatest generation, more sense of stability in terms of being part of the Christian community and uh, less kind of figuring out if the church is really a place for them. So just kind of open a little bit of a Pandora's box on that. So I'm going to leave that teaser there and we'll we'll find another time on that conversation. <laughs> As a sort of follow up to that, though, I I, um, I personally hear a lot that people become overwhelmed by the sheer amount of considerations made for, you know, formation audiences, whether it's education, ethnic groups, age, et cetera, like just all these different things. How do we help ministers, particularly, or people who are in leadership positions within their parishes or communities, see the value in making those considerations and why are they so important? Mm. Well, I think the first step, at least my my encouragement and exhortation to the parishes that I served and, and consulted with was that you can't be what you can't see. So if parish leadership isn't really taking the time and by leadership, I, I, I paint with a broad brush on that, right? Not just employed parish staff, not just clergy, but also volunteers. Anyone who is occupying, a, a you know, that corner of the world in terms of leadership. People who are supposed to share in the mission of the church, in, in the leadership as defined by their community, you know, whatever <laughs> exactly. that looks like. So we're, I'm using a broad brush on that one, but you can't be what you can't see. So if parish leadership isn't um, committed to their own ongoing formation as adults who are faithful, if they are not modeling that for the community, really committed to what the outward facing model of leadership looks like, it's going to be really hard to kind of sell anything else as worthy of commitment, time and energy. Right. So we have to start by modeling what it is that we desire for the community. Uh, I think once we do that, then it's also a lot easier for us to find spaces of prioritization and figure out how to resource time, talent, treasure, you know, again, resource writ large, it's easier for us to resource that because we have now an, an abiding personal commitment to it and we know the benefit of that. 
Um, Does that answer the question? Yeah, I think so. I think that, I mean, because I think that's a, such an important conversation to have. And I don't know about you, but I've heard that plenty of times where they're like, I'm too overworked. Mm -hmm. And now you're telling me I need to appeal to, you know, young adults <laughs> or I need to appeal to like whatever the group is that they quote unquote think of as a special interest group. But in yeah. reality, they are they are part of their community, whether they whether the leadership acknowledges it or not. Mm -hmm. And it is also a good space, you know, in the spirit of that, John, I think it's also worth noting that could be a great space for um, succession planning and intergenerational mentorship. Mm. Usually succession planning gives all of us the heebie-jeebies a little bit, right? Because we all don't want to think about that. But really, let's so let's say intergenerational mentorship, right? It's a great time to say, if I do feel perhaps I don't have the time or energy to commit to it, as you rightly said, there's sort of this illusion of special interest groups, right? Perhaps that's a great time to figure out how do I bring other people into this ministry? How can I invite others to take ownership of that component and share my wisdom and experience with them? And they can own perhaps their own corner of it, all for the greater good of forming adults in the community. You know, it doesn't have to be all of us because we all have a limited amount of, I haven't gotten a time turner from Harry Potter yet to figure out how to get more hours in my day. If anyone listening does do email me, I'd love one. Well, I think your point is absolutely right about the, the formation or the intergenerational mentorship because that in of itself is a form of formation, especially yeah. on the part of who is being mentored. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they become then the formators for other people, but they're still being formed themselves, not in the traditional, you know, classroom or small group study model, but it's still formation. Exactly. Because we never, you know, again, that's the point. We never level up in formation, right? There's not, even those of us who have directed formation in some capacity or, or um, lead catechesis in some capacity, right? You, that doesn't mean we've leveled up and somehow we have more, uh, you know, there's, there's a finite pot of formation available and we have leveled up and accrued more of it. It just means that you know, we, we have done some capacity of work in our way, in the, you know, in the way that we needed to grow in our faith. And so we can continue to grow in that while walking with other people who are growing in their faith too. They're not mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. Colleen asks, what are some concrete steps, both at the parish level and the diocese that we can take to help the church move away from a program mentality as the way, main way to form adults? That's a great question. I think, um, one place to start is to kind of do an assessment in terms, let's start with the parish level, right? Kind of do an assessment of what ministries are available in the parish. This doesn't need to be super formal, right? I bet you probably have a, a list somewhere, an e-list, e you know, your website. I hope you have a really nice website if you're listening. I hope your parish has a beautiful website. I, I know John is like, oh, yes, I hope they do too. But you know, wherever you keep sort of a roster of what ministries are ticking and humming in your parish, I would start with that and say, okay, what are we doing? If I'm an adult and I want to grow my faith, the parish is in some way a community that I want to be a part of. Where am I going where I can be full in some way? So is it in, in participation in the liturgy? Is it in social ministries? Is it in... Um, uh, you know, more pastoral ministries, where is it? And, and pick a few places to really just crack open and figure out what they're doing and what are some spaces where that can be built out. I would, um, again, as you might've gathered, I would caution against finding like a program that you heard someone did that sounds really great. How can I buy it? How can I open the box and unleash it on my parish? I would, I would start with what's already there and say, okay, well, you know, like the person that oversees the parish picnic has this amazing capacity to mentor people to own their own, you know, the, the person running the fried dough booth and the person running the sausage and peppers booth. And can you tell them from New Jersey? Cause they're all food booths. 
you know, that person has a mentoring capacity. How can we use that to say that the people who are part of the parish picnic planning committee pray around hospitality, pray around being welcoming, utilize stories and scripture in their meetings to um, understand our Christian mission and discipleship to hospitality? Okay, like, you know, those are tiny little avenues. It doesn't have to be a grand formation plan that's going to upend the beautiful machinations of a parish that already exists. So I would start with what you already have and figure out how to keep doing those things really well and better. I hope, Colleen, that answers the uh, the question. That's a good, I hope that's a place to start. Um, and then Dana asks, since we're not our hearts burning within us, encourage the catechumenate model for adult faith formation. How do you adapt that to the gatherings uh, adults over a period of time? And I'd also, expand that to also include in light of the of the current directory for catechesis, which was written up obviously much more recently mm -hmm. from the Vatican, what does the what does that say regarding that element as well? Mm -hmm. Sort of catechumenic model. Um, I have a really strong opinion on something which will shock everyone listening to this that I have a strong opinion, but my opinion is that I fell in love with the RCIA. I think it is, um, something that the church does that is just so beautiful. And it is one of those things where you go, this is so great. I wish everyone knew how great this could be. Surely you would all get as excited as I am. Not everybody does. I know that. But you know, you just, you're on fire for something. So I genuinely believe that if every Christian community owned the catechumenate model, we would have a major culture shift in how we form adults. Because the model of the catechumenate is what the early church adopted, right? This is not, um, I used to joke, Nicole Perone did not invent the catechumenate in her office at the archdiocese. You know, I wasn't sitting there one day looking around kind of bored and thought, I guess I'll just write this whole crazy thing called the RCIA. It is the wisdom of the church over centuries. And so it is beautiful and we know that it works. Now, in terms of adapting that to gatherings of adults, I think there's a few things the catechumenate does really well that I, I would totally celebrate. Um, catechetical models in the catechumenate are scripture driven, it's lectionary driven, so it's very simple um, in that way. And what I mean by simple is you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to sit down and say, what am I going to do in this gathering of adults that's going to be new and innovative that just no one has thought of before? We have in the wisdom of the church everything that we need to succeed, and we just have to orient our eyes toward it, right? We have to hold those things up as a lens. So you can't go wrong with breaking open the scripture for that Sunday and walking through that. You, you That's the most beautiful, simple place to start in terms of gatherings of adults, right? That's also the wisdom of small Christian communities, right? Is that catechumenate model. So I would consider that component as a really easy place to start with the catechumenate model. And then I would also, you know, invite the consideration of the liturgical year. Again, the church has all these amazing tools. Like, ah, I could just sit here and think about this all day. I might be thinking about it even after we're done here, just how amazing the church is with these things. But the catechumenate runs on a liturgical model, even though we desire a year-round catechumenate in our, in our RCIA, for sure. The wisdom of the church is that it's built on this liturgical year that catechumens and candidates and those seeking the fullness of Christian initiation engage in the fullness of the liturgical year, walk through Advent and Lent in these really profound ways. And so how can we take that as a lens to things that we're doing in the parish? You know, are our prayers 
our, our themes, our missions, our retreats, all focused on this liturgical year process, or are we trying to come up with the latest jazzy thing? I, I, I would encourage the former. So this is a question for me, um, and you can tell because of what the question is going to be in a second. Um, <laughs> how often should we look at our programs to, to view effectiveness in our ministries? Oh, yeah, I would have known that was that was a, <laughs> a John Tico question. That's a good question. Um, you know, I am a believer in evaluations. I'm a big believer in evaluations. Uh, perhaps to the chagrin of anyone who's worked with me before, anyone who, who's worked with me is going, oh, yeah, that girl loves an eval. But I do believe that when we run programs, events, anything that has, you know, sort of a, a hard beginning or end or even a softer beginning or end, there should be evaluation processes, you know. An example that I'll use is every year we were responsible for the right of election of the archdiocese, right? A thousand of my closest friends and I would gather at the cathedral for the right of election. Now that's an event that is not um, perhaps ongoing adult faith formation, but is one that we use as a moment to have um, many moments of evangelization for anyone who was gathered. We did an eval the next like working day after that. So if folks are off on Monday, on Tuesday, I gathered the whole team and we would sit down and do an evaluation. Of course, they're like, Nicole, we are dying. We're tired. You know, you had us working on Sunday at the cathedral on our feet. This is so not what we want to be doing. I'm like, yes, but it's fresh. It's fresh in our minds. So I would consider if you're running any sort of program in a parish on a liturgical cycle, or, or sometimes we do it on the pastoral year, that's sort of like um, August to October window and then through the sacramental season, like end of May. So let's call that the pastoral year, which kind of lines with the academic year. I would definitely recommend sort of evaluations of efficacy of, uh, to receive feedback, what worked, what didn't, who's involved. I would recommend that definitively by the end of each pastoral year. Uh, I don't know about in other places, but I know in Connecticut, one thing I've noticed in parishes is people kind of take the summers off. It's a very much a place where things kind of drop off that June to August window. I love you, Connecticut, but everyone's at Cape Cod. And I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I should go to Cape Cod too. But that's a good time, I think, at the end of all of it to say, okay, what worked? What did we do all year long to build up to this program that we run? Um, who was involved with it? What feedback did we get from people who participated in it? And is this something that is of value to consider doing? Like, I think the temporal questions can be very effective for sort of the functions. Now, John, I want to know your answer. How often should we be looking at our programs for effectiveness? Um, so, I mean, I, I agree. I think I think it also depends on your uh, group and mm -hmm. really taking, I think back to your original point, understanding like who you are, you, like understanding who your community is, understanding who your leadership is, understanding those type of things are such fundamental questions. But I think the big thing is understanding as a leadership, what is the most important information you need to know? And also take an honest look at like, what, what is the information you want to know, but are afraid to ask? Oh, yeah. And so what I mean by that is something like effectiveness, a lot of people think about, but they don't think of how the question can be phrased to, to remove that sort of like, oh, everything's great. You know, offering mm -hmm. open feedback is one of the things I actually, um, highly recommend when it comes to analysis and assessments, because I think that it offers some some of the most unvarnished uh, approaches instead of your like one to five scale, while that's more quantitatively helpful, open open feedback also gives a perspective from the, the subjective that's a little bit, you know, more helpful in the planning and process. But I agree with you. I think a pastoral year or every couple years, I'm also a subscriber, not, you know, 
looking at programs and having an end date, like a soft end date of this is our date of reassessment. Here is our date of, um, you know, whether we're going to continue or not and assessing the costs and benefits or the benefits and costs, whether they're actual financial or more importantly to the mission and vision of your parish or, or diocese. Um, yeah, you can tell I'm studying church management because those are all <laughs> questions that you should be asking. But yeah, I agree with your point. I think, you know, every year, every other year, and especially keeping it relatively fresh in mind, I think is super helpful too. I would add to that, you know, if, if it is programmatic, like if it is a thing that happens on Saturday from 10 to 2, the evaluation should be handed to everyone as they leave, whether digitally, I mean, handed in whatever fashion you determine. But so they're evaluating, you know, fresh in mind as well. But as soon as you said keeping it fresh, I'm like, oh, yes, we got to underscore that. Because if you did something programmatic in Advent and you ask folks in Lent, that is a liturgical lifetime like of difference, right? They are different people, um, especially adults who have a lot of other stuff going on. They're like, oh, what? What do I do in Advent again? You know, right then and there. But of course, folks, if you ever want to hear John and me just talk about data and how it can serve the church, you know, that's another webinar for another time. But big believers in data here. Well, and I think also it helps us move away from being programmatic in the sense of number-based ministries. Mm -hmm. You know, that it, our success is measured by the literal amount of seats we have filled in our in our churches, in our auditoriums, in our you know community centers, et cetera. Yeah. That it moves us into like, how did this help someone a year or two from now actually become more more discerning, more of a missionary disciple, et cetera, et cetera. And then if it doesn't, then we need, even though it has a huge amount of numbers, we need to assess and see, you know, is this good that we're getting a lot of people, but not necessarily a deep engagement, or is this something we need to sort of adjust our priorities? I think that's a good point because it speaks to the question of whether a parish is um, programmatically alive but spiritually dead. And I, that can sound dramatic, but it is something that we need to be holding up as a pulse check for, for all of us. Because just because you can offer a lot of programs or a lot of things for ongoing formation, which in and of themselves might be very, very good, if, as, as John rightly said, if they're not introducing people to a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ, if they're not being compelled in chin to, to go forth and be disciples, um, then great. You, you ran a lot of great things and that's awesome. And I celebrate you for that work, but we, we want spiritual vitality. So it's those, the, the challenge of holding intention metrics and things that are not measurable can always be very tricky in our line mm -hmm. of work. Um, it's sort of like a last ish question. And if people still want to ask questions, feel free to use the chat. But a question that I think is relevant for a lot of people here and you brought it up is, the sort of post-COVID reality of our formation and of our ministerial programs. And for, for I think people here would be interested from your perspective as a diocesan person, and now working for a national organization focused on sort of like one of the most transient populations ever is that post-collegiate group. Um, what are some considerations we need to make for our post-COVID formation programs, which went purely online because of necessity but now because of you know opening up of churches, opening up of schools, um, those considerations may not be as required. Let's, let's put it nicely and say that. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I get that. Um, I think the first order of business would be do not sell short your digital presence. Digital presence is never to be temporary. Welcome to 2021. If you are, you know, it may seem harsh, but there are, of more than a few communities that sort of responded to this COVID reality as saying, well, we will do these digital things temporarily. 
then when the um, parameters, you know, capacity limitations are lifted or when the obligation is reinstated, we'll gather in person and that will go, you know, that will go back in the box by, you know, by the wayside back on the shelf. And the reality is that the world is not going to permit us to do that first and foremost. And there is no magic date where the curtain goes up and we can all gather in person at full capacity and, and obligation. Like as we can all see, wherever we are, as you're all listening to this, is probably different for every single person, every single state, every single local situation. So the longer you wait for that magical day, the harder it's going to be, as opposed to saying, okay, we are forever making a digital presence part of our reality. And it may not be the most glamorous, right? We may not have the greatest capacity of what we want, but we're willing to be there. And we're willing to, you know, again, go to the sort of existential margins in this way, go to the margins in the digital sphere. Um, I think to the point of young adulthood too, let me kind of two birds, one stone this, young adults have an almost obsession with authenticity and can smell inauthenticity from about 10 miles away. And so that is a very authentic response. Like, okay, we may not be the greatest at this. It may be a point and shoot, you know, it may be something not super fancy, but we're trying to be there. And we're trying to offer things continually. We're trying to continue to offer live stream masses until such a time as people can gather safely, et cetera, et cetera. And that authentic effort, no matter how unglamorous it might be, will garner respect. I think people can respect that we're all in this boat. Everyone needs more than anyone can give at this point. The only one who can give everything that we need is Jesus Christ. The rest of us can put aside the expectation that we are going to be everything that everyone needs right now. So that would be my recommendation would be do not forsake the things you have done to move in the digital sphere, you need to stay there. There's just ways to do incredible build out and wrap around once you can gather in person, extend that opportunity. But it's a great way to respond to that transient need too. You know, if you have folks in your community who travel a lot for work, for example, right? Let's say they're able to travel again, which is great and they're doing their thing, but they want to stay connected to the community. But you know, the thing you're offering happens only on Tuesdays at 9 a.m. Well, they're, you know, they're out of the loop. But if there's a digital capacity and they're on a flight, but it's happening and something they can click into, that's yeah, beautiful. That's going where people are and it's going outside the church walls. So the long story short, do not forsake the digital sphere just because the in-person sphere becomes available. Well, I think you came up with two great points that I just want to like sort of wrap up and, and highlight. I think one is the authentic piece. And I think you, you know, I'm sure you can speak stories about this if we had more time about some of those top conversations during the Synod, because in all of the documentation, it comes to this question for what, what do young people crave the most? It's authenticity. You know, it, it's a church that is relevant for the world in the time in which it was written, you know, 2018, but still hasn't really changed in 2021 that people are striving for authenticity. And the other thing is like reaching people where they are, like just because you are in, you know, Connecticut doesn't mean that you can't reach people outside of, like, for instance, we're in DC here, we have people from California. The, the idea that you can reach multiple people through the digital space as its own community is something that's super important for us to consider post pandemic, because it also forces us outside of our, you know, physical parish confines. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is where we are. We are outside the walls, man. <laughs> We are St. Paul outside the walls for all my Basilicas in Rome fans. <laughs> well, I think if no, nobody else seems to have any questions, so I'm going to 
begin our wrap up. And so I want to thank you, Nicole, for your presentation and staying on for the question and answer. I hope everyone appreciated this. Um, and thank you to everyone who tuned in and joined us today. We will have a, a recording of this webinar uploaded to our YouTube channel in the next week. So keep an eye out there and on our website, catholicapostlecenter.org for the link. This is actually part of a series, a uh, seven part series actually on the directory for catechesis. So this was our fifth webinar and we will have another webinar called Catechesis as a Missionary Go Forth, Going Forth with Jen Wood, Pam Tremblay and Monica Tom Konchnik on Thursday, April 8th at 1 p.m. Eastern. If you go to catholicapostlecenter.org backslash webinars, you can find the registration information there as well as when the video for this one is uploaded, it will be available there as well to share. If you yet, haven't yet found us on social media, please like, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram in the hope that we'll continue to reach more people with spreading the message of the gospel. In the words of St. Vincent Pilati, may the charity of Christ urge you on. Thank you, and God bless.